1: Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters program on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. As people get older, not only do they experience physical changes, but also changes in their sleep patterns. In fact, a significant part of the normal aging process for older adults includes changes in how they sleep which can lead to sleep problems for this population. Today, my guest is Dr. Erica Krauss, Associate Professor in the Department of Pharmacotherapy and Outcome Science at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy. She's going to talk about how aging affects sleep and what factors can prevent older adults from getting a good night's sleep. She'll also discuss common sleep problems that may occur, and what can be done to lessen or eliminate them. So welcome, Dr. Krauss, and thank you for joining me today.
2: And thank you for having me a guest on your show. I appreciate it.
1: Okay. Well, Dr. Kraus, just to get started, I think probably everybody always likes to know what the number of hours of sleep that older adults really need. And I'd like to start out that way. And also, can that number vary? Can some people have less, some more? What would you tell us?
2: I think that's fair. And I'm probably the the pot calling the kettle black because I don't get that ideal eight hours of sleep that everyone is supposed to every night. But according to the National Institute on Aging, which is a national organization, they say roughly seven to nine hours is ideal. Um, But in general, older adults tend to go to sleep earlier and wake up earlier than when they were younger. And so sometimes they, I think, can misinterpret that they're not getting the full amount of sleep. And can it vary between the individual? I absolutely think so. There are some people who seven hours is enough for them to function very well versus others. If they don't get that full eight hours, they can definitely tell if that makes sense.
1: Yes. And maybe you could help us really understand why getting a good night's sleep is so important. I think people underestimate it. In fact, sometimes they're even proud if they can get along on less sleep. So explain to us, especially as I said, as we age, why a good night's sleep is so important.
2: I think that's a great question. And I usually like to use the analogy of our cell phones. We live in a very electronic world. And if we do not charge our cell phone overnight, it's not going to work as well. And the battery may kind of give out over the course of the day. And so I've always thought of sleep as we as humans, we need to recharge our battery. And so the ideal is, again, that eight hours that we need to sleep at night so we can get up and function really well during the day. Without a good night's sleep, I feel like people have reduced alertness. They can sometimes be more irritable. Um, and I think you may ask me this later, but older adults who don't get a good night's sleep, interestingly, has been increased to a increased risk of falls.
1: Well, that's that certainly is very, very important. And We'll be talking about that and other uh, situations and conditions that occur because people don't get a good night's sleep. But before getting into that, I wanted to ask you some of the factors that can affect getting that good night's sleep. And here's a couple. First of all, let's start with, like, body chemicals uh, and hormones. Uh, And I'll give you a few more, but I'll just give you one at a time.
2: Oh, perfect. Okay. And so... As we age, for starters, I think some of our just general hormones, such as testosterone and estrogen, go down. So in older men, lower testosterone levels have actually been linked to um, poor sleep versus flip side, sleep loss can actually affect testosterone levels. So I think it's a two-way kind of double-edged sword there. And in females, if you recall when you went through menopause, when we start to have lower Um, levels of estrogen, progesterone, that can also impact our sleep. Some other body chemicals and neurotransmitters, which we'll probably talk about when we get to medications, there are some that promote wake, such as serotonin, histamine, dopamine, and orexin. Um, Whereas we have some body chemicals, such as melatonin or GABA, that are what we consider sleep promoting. And so these are often targets of a lot of our medications that are available because they try and either increase those sleep-promoting or reduce the effects of those weight-promoting hormones.
1: Okay, well, what about sleeping positions?
2: And I'm smiling because I'm a pharmacist, so I'm definitely not an expert on that. But what I do know is my understanding is sleeping on, like, I think... you sleeping on your side is preferred, but it depends on what type of medical conditions and complaints you have. For example, if you have sleep apnea, you should probably avoid sleeping on your back because that can increase the risk of snoring um, versus other people say sleeping on your back may actually help improve hip or knee pain. And then I mentioned, I think side is preferred. So people who also have GERD or back pain might might find this beneficial and overall the consensus is the least preferred is if the people who are stomach sleepers sleep on their stomach.
1: I'm not sure how even I could sleep on my stomach anymore, but that's a that's another factor. So, how about yes. lifestyle habits?
2: Yes, and Pause on that, because I do think it's also important to have a good mattress depending on how you sleep, and I think there's a lot of research out there now looking at the different type of sleep mattresses and how it impacts sleep. So a lot of our things like smoking, alcohol use, stimulants like caffeine, they definitely can impact sleep. So smoking, I think, is a stimulant. And so if you smoke close to bedtime, that can make it harder to fall asleep. Could also be linked to worsening some sleep disorders such as restless leg syndrome. Alcohol use, I think a lot of people often consider it a a CNS depressant, so it makes people feel sleepy, but it's actually been shown to reduce the quality of sleep that people have, and so they don't get as refreshing of a night's sleep, and often wake up at three or four o'clock in the morning and have a hard time going back to sleep. And then lastly, caffeine, Actually, whenever I have somebody who presents who has a hard time sleeping or has anxiety, I always like to know how much caffeine they're actually drinking. And I would say one of the biggest interventions I made on somebody who had a hard time sleeping one time was asking them about their caffeine intake, and they actually were drinking coffee up until about nine o'clock at night. Usually, we recommend trying to not have caffeine after lunchtime, or depending on the person, maybe 2 p.m. Because it does impact people differently.
1: I'm also wondering what your thoughts are in terms of possible disturbances from sleep partners. Obviously, people more—I won't say more often, but often have a sleep partner, but can their movement or maybe they snore or some other kind of sounds, can that actually impact somebody from having a good night's sleep? What 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 can you tell us about that?
2: Absolutely. Um, and I agree. If somebody has something like the snoring you mentioned or sleep apnea, or they have the type of disorder where they act out their dreams in bed or restless legs, they may be kicking their sleep partner, which can disturb their sleep. The other thing is if your bed partner is up reading a book and having light on in the room, that can impact your ability to fall asleep. And so I will say, I'm assuming older adults, I'm assuming that's not the right term, but if they've been with their partner for 20, 30, 40 years, hopefully they have figured out how to co-sleep, but you're right, what the other person does can help. And flip side, if you are searching or looking for somebody to evaluate, your sleep disturbances, I think it's good to bring your spouse with you or your sleep partner because they can describe what they observe while you're sleeping, which can be helpful to the physician.
1: Okay. Well, we've talked a little bit now about uh, sleep patterns, but help us understand why do sleep patterns change as, as people age? Are there certain physiological changes that cause these kinds of changes?
2: And I would say yes. I, As I mentioned earlier, I think older adults tend to go to sleep earlier and wake up earlier. They also, I'm gonna joke, and if they're retired, they don't have to get up to an alarm. So they're able to let their body sleep when it needs to. And sometimes they're more likely to actually follow a true circadian rhythm. So as you're, it's getting dark outside, they're gonna be more likely to start to think about going to bed. And if the sun wakes up early, they're gonna be more likely to wake up with the sun. Um, I think it's also interesting, older adults sometimes complain that it's harder to fall asleep at night and they may actually spend more time in bed versus actual time sleeping. And that can be because of some of the disturbances they have over the course of the night. My understanding is an average adult may wake up three to four times each night. And when they wake up, they're actually more aware that they're awake and they could be getting out of the bathroom, for example, to go use the restroom. Um, And so this can also impact just the quality of sleep over the course of the night. I think we mentioned some of the hormonal changes earlier. I also think it's important to think about Alzheimer's disease if you've heard the term sundowning, where some people start to get revved up around sundown and that's when they're more awake, or they also have a hard time differentiating the daytime versus the evening time. And then lastly, I think I've read that older adults are thought to spend less time in deep sleep. Um, and that's why they are more susceptible to be woken up if something occurs during the course of the evening.
1: Well, you're bringing up a, a, a good topic or a good segue into a normal sleep cycle. Can you explain exactly what that means and how many sleep cycles do adults need per night? What does that mean?
2: Sure, and I could probably spend 20 minutes on this, but I'll try to be brief. Um, and I'll say a young, healthy adult, generally we spend we cycle between what's called non-REM sleep, which is broken down into stages one through four. And when we get into stage three and four is really that deep, slow-wave sleep. Versus REM sleep is what's called your rapid eye movement, which is where your eyes flutter while you're sleeping and are often dreaming. And so in a young healthy adult, we usually cycle through that three to four times over the course of the night. And as time goes on and each time you cycle, that REM sleep gets longer and you hit your deep sleep sooner. Versus an older adult, Um, Because they are interrupted so often and wake up more frequently, they often don't get as long of REM periods. They may have more, but they're shorter and briefer than younger persons, and they may not reach that deep um, stage 3 and 4 sleep either as much.
1: Because these things are happening and some of the uh, conditions that you described earlier, uh, I'd like to spend some time talking about the kind of sleep problems that can occur. And let, let's start with physical symptoms. If, a, if an older adult is not getting the good night sleep that we talked about, what are some of the physical symptoms that may occur um, because people aren't sleeping as well?
2: Absolutely. So I think just in general, starting with fatigue and feeling tired, So you might not have as much energy over the course of the day, but then that can also impact your alertness and concentration, which can impact people's alertness while they're driving or doing things that really require you to be very focused and alert while doing that activity. Um, It can also worsen pain. And I think in general, if you're not getting a good night's sleep, it can have impact on just your overall physical health.
1: Would that also not only your physical health, I would assume that it could uh, impact your mental uh, mental health and maybe even emotional in terms of your attitudes towards uh, your situation. Would you agree?
2: Absolutely. And I think I mentioned some people who don't get a good night's sleep are often more irritable. irritable. But over time, if you don't have that chance to, like I said, recharge your battery, people do start to get more depressed. Um, It can impact their outlook. Sometimes they start to focus on why they're not sleeping. We start to see anxiety about going to bed and not being able to sleep. And it's actually when people complain of difficulty sleeping, we often do want to start by screening for untreated medical conditions or untreated psychiatric or mental illness before we just jump straight to treating insomnia, because it can be a presenting symptom for many things.
1: And I would imagine also that these mental and emotional symptoms that you're talking about can really um, raise your stress level in terms of worrying about not being able to sleep. And then you get more stressed out because you can't sleep. And that impacts you not only at night when you're tossing and turning, but during the day as well. Um, Would you agree?
2: I do, you can't see me shaking my head yes, but I was nodding along as you were saying that. And part of that I call the alarm clock syndrome where people sit and look at the alarm clock and start calculating if I fall asleep now and I have to get up at this time tomorrow, I'm only gonna get this much sleep, which only compounds I think the issue versus some people sometimes lie in bed and stress about something they need to do the next day or that they might forget to do it. I always encourage people to keep a notepad by their bedside table. So if they find themselves keep repeating, I can't forget to do this tomorrow, I can't forget to do this tomorrow, just to write it down, put that thought to bed, and hopefully that'll help reduce some of the stress and maybe make it a little bit easier to go to sleep.
1: And I would imagine with all of these various symptoms that people are having as a result of not getting a good night's sleep can have long-term health effects. In terms of maybe exacerbated uh, physical and mental and emotional symptoms, but maybe there are other things.
2: No, And I think a lot of what we already talked about, but one of the big links really is with what I call kind of the metabolic syndrome. So being overweight, diabetes, high blood pressure. Um, One of the things when people have a hard time sleeping at night, they've actually done studies and people get up and are more likely to go graze and snack in the middle of the night, which, again, can lead to that weight loss and other medical, I'm sorry, weight gain and other medical conditions that are associated with that. And then I think we've already really talked about just feeling fatigued and not having energy the next day can be a long term health concern
1: and now you just brought up medical conditions like mm-hmm. obesity and hypertension and diabetes are is it limited to that or are there other medical conditions that might be associated with sleep problems and disorders
2: of course i my primary area that i work in is mental health so some of the conditions that i think about are the mental health ones as we mentioned depression anxiety But flip side, there's also a lot of medical conditions that are associated with sleep problems. For example, again, weight gain or obesity, uncontrolled diabetes. If people have what's called GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease, a lot of people refer to that as heartburn. Um, People who have CHF or congestive heart failure also may have a harder time sleeping because they have shortness of breath while lying down and may need multiple pillows to find a comfortable position to where they're comfortable to fall asleep. Um, I also like to talk about with older men, benign prostatic hypertrophy or BPH because this, a core symptom of that disorder is our older males who have to get up and urinate three, four, five, six times per night that clearly can impact their um, sleep quality. And if you think about it, part of it may be getting back in bed after urinating, how long does it take them to fall back asleep? And now if they just did that five times, we might've lost a good two hours of sleep over the course of the night. Um, Some other things include sleep apnea and a sleep disorder called narcolepsy. And I think I don't think I've mentioned pain yet, but pain also can impact your quality of sleep. You may have a hard time finding a comfortable sleep position, which may make it harder to fall asleep. And as I mentioned before, the quality of your mattress may actually be important if you have a lot of back, knee, or hip pain.
1: And I'm wondering if, again, because older adults often do, say, have more pain or arthritis, then they might start thinking about taking some kind of a medication to help them sleep better, or they're just taking other kinds of medications for the various uh, medical conditions that we're uh, talking about. Is there often a relationship between the medications that older adults are taking and um, the greater likelihood of, of sleep problems?
2: And again, I'm going to say absolutely. Starting with your question about pain, and I say this as a word of caution to the listeners, over-the-counter options for pain include Tylenol, which is acetaminophen, or ibuprofen, which is either Motrin, Um They often do market what's called Tylenol PM or Motrin PM, but I caution you guys to use that. If you're using it just for pain, pick the single ingredient. You don't necessarily need the one that says PM because that added ingredient is diphenhydramine, which is an antihistamine. And for some older adults, that can cause a lot more problems than be beneficial. So I would start with just treating the pain, if that makes sense. Some other medications that can cause sleep problems, we mentioned there's disease states like heart failure, hypertension that can cause sleep problems, but flip side, the medications we use to treat them. So if you're on a diuretic, which is what makes you urinate more, if you take that too late in the day or too close to bedtime, you just cause yourself to get up in the middle of the night to urinate. And so we usually recommend taking those early in the morning, but I've definitely met the people who are like, I have lunch plans. So I'm going to wait till I get home to take my diuretic because I don't want to have to go to the bathroom during my lunch plans. But that may then ultimately end up impacting their sleep. We've talked about depression as a cause for insomnia Whereas flip side, the medications we use to treat depression, a lot of antidepressants work on serotonin, such as the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Many of you may know as Prozac or fluoxetine, um, sertraline or Zoloft, Lexapura, citalopram all of those can cause insomnia. So again, we often recommend taking them in the morning. There's a medication called bupropion or Welbutrin. That one also can be stimulating, and it's actually recommended, depending on the product you're on, to be taken twice a day, but we actually recommend taking it at, for example, 9 a.m. and 2 p.m., because again, if you take it too late in the evening, it can impact sleep. Lastly, I wanted to talk about air receptor denepazil for Alzheimer's. Um, Some people, it can cause insomnia, and so if you're dosing it at bedtime and they're having a hard time sleeping, rather than adding a medicine, Sometimes talking to your doctor or prescriber about a medication you're taking at bedtime, would it be better to try taking it in the morning and see if that helps? I hope I answered your question.
1: Well, yeah, and in fact, I'm glad that you mentioned about talking with your doctor or your prescriber. I think because, especially if someone gets some new kind of medication that they haven't taken before, they don't really know, well, gee, should I take this in the morning? Should I take it at noon? Should I take it in the evening? And you know, you in your expertise, Dr. Krause, as a uh, a doctor of pharmacy, what, what can people ask? I, I'd like to have you advise our listeners about those kinds of questions, about especially a new medication to prevent, you know, sleep problems. What, what do you tell your patients?
2: I think that's great. And a lot of times the doctor will just write, take this medication once per day and so asking either the pharmacist when they pick it up or the prescriber who's ordering it what time of day is it preferred for me to take this so should it be morning should it be before bedtime um and then if they start taking it and we know that say 70 80 of people this will make them feel sleepy we're often going to recommend taking it at bedtime but there's always the subset of the population who have the opposite reaction. And so if you're taking something that we think is going to keep you awake in the morning and you feel really drowsy after taking it, by all means, ask your doctor if it would be appropriate to take it before bed versus if you're taking something before bed and you feel wide awake after taking it, maybe you should ask them if that's a medication you should take earlier in the day.
1: As important as it is to get the medication, that kind of additional information as to when to take it is really important, especially to prevent sleep problems. So we are going to take a short break here. We are talking with Dr. Erica Kraus, the Associate Professor in the Department of Pharmacotherapy and Outcome Science at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy. And you're listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are having a very good conversation with Dr. Erica Krause about sleep and aging. And we learned a lot already about sleep problems and long-term health effects that can occur due to lack of sleep. And so I want to start this part of the interview of talking about insomnia, because that's really what it's all about. So Dr. Kraus, explain to us What exactly is insomnia and why is it more prevalent among older adults?
2: Yes. And I think you're right. Insomnia is actually the most prevalent sleep disorder in older adults. And we do see insomnia increase as we age. I've seen statistics actually as high as 75% of adults 65 years and older have reported some symptom of insomnia. Now, I think we all generally often think about a hard time falling asleep, but insomnia actually has multiple symptoms, including that difficulty falling asleep. But for some people, they may fall asleep just fine, but they have a hard time staying asleep and getting that full eight hours. Other persons we mentioned, some of the medical disorders older adults have may get up in the middle of the night and they may have a hard time falling back asleep when they wake up in the middle of the night. Lastly, There. not lastly, there's two other symptoms. One is early morning awakening. So that's where you wake up at four or five o'clock in the morning and have a hard time getting back to sleep and you have not had your full eight hours. Or lastly, you were in bed for eight hours. You think you slept eight hours, yet you feel unrefreshed despite the adequate hours of sleep or time in bed.
1: And so help us on this. How can insomnia be prevented? And and Talk about some different types of therapy or practices that you strongly recommend so that folks don't suffer from insomnia.
2: Yes. And I think the first thing to start with is good old, we call it sleep hygiene. And so this is having a structured bedtime routine, going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time. I know a lot of people like to watch TV in bed, but we strongly recommend against that because of that bright light can trick your brain into thinking it's still light outside and it's not time to go to bed. Um, I know I'm talking to an audience of older adults. You all probably remember when the evening news were done and TV was gone. But nowadays, with things like Netflix, Hulu, people can stay up for hours and hours and hours watching their favorite show, which that can impact sleep. Um, Sleeping in a cool, dark room is helpful with older adults, though, I do recommend making sure you have a clear pathway to the bathroom in the event you get up in the middle of the night, you don't want to trip and fall. And then also with cell phones, we always recommend people not look at their cell phones right before bed because, again, that's that bright light. Versus, I think you asked about other like non-pharmacologic things. There's something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is usually administered by therapists. So my understanding, and again, I'm a pharmacist. So when you hear me recommend a non-drug treatment, that means I really believe in it. And so the guidelines for treating insomnia, CBTI, so that's the specific cognitive behavioral therapy targeted to insomnia is actually one of the most effective non-pharmacologic or non-medication interventions that we have to treat insomnia. The concern is that you actually have to find a psychologist or therapist who's actually trained in it. In my understanding, there's only about 300 of these psychologists nationwide, so it's a very specific specialty. But despite that, just general cognitive behavioral therapy can help people really focus on their anxieties about getting enough sleep or some of their misconceptions about sleep. And it doesn't work immediately. It does take time and effort on the person who's doing it, but ultimately it's going to have probably a longer-term benefit than medications.
1: And so one would need to check with their primary care physician regarding cognitive behavioral therapy, or are there any particular resources that might help?
2: Sure. And so I think a starting point is your physician, but usually it's being recommended to a psychologist or a therapist. And when you're researching different therapists, usually they have their list of specialties on there. And so... My understanding is to have that specific training, it is called a diplomat of behavioral sleep medicine. Um, But I think general therapy can be helpful. It's just not as strongly regarded as the specific CBTI.
1: And one step back, I wanted to ask in terms of a condition called nocturia, which can also be prevalent in... Women, I mean, you talked a little bit earlier about BPH for men because of, of an enlarged prostate. But from the research that I've seen as I was preparing these questions, women, too, can suffer from nocturia. Is there any medication or any practice that can at least lower the incidence of nocturia in women?
2: Sure. Um, And great question. Sorry, I focused on men. I originally trained at a VA, so we had a lot of older men. Um, But you're right. Women also can get up in the middle of the night multiple times. Sometimes we have what's called incontinence, where you sneeze, you laugh, and you lose some of your water or your urine. I think some of the things you can do is limit your amount of fluids right before bedtime. So you don't have a full bladder when you're going to bed. Make sure you pee before you go to bed. There are medications to help with incontinence, but I think it's very, you need to be very careful because some of them can cause confusion in older adults. So you really want to have that benefits versus risk discussion with your provider. But again, I think the bigger things are not drinking too much fluids right before bedtime, kind of giving yourself a time where you should cut them off, not taking your water pills right before bedtime. That can really help.
1: Let's talk about snoring. We hear so much about snoring and help us understand, is snoring actually a cause for sleep disruption? And what types of health conditions actually cause snoring? And is it also, are there ways to reduce that possibility?
2: Yes, I'll say it's twofold. You mentioned bed partners earlier. So if you have a bed partner who's snoring, it may impact your quality sleep. That one I have an easy remedy for. It's earplugs. If you're comfortable wearing them, that can help. Versus, if you are the person who's actually snoring, it is cause for concern that you should talk with your primary provider. Um, often, it's linked to a condition called sleep apnea, and we see that more often in, I'll say, in kind of your 40 to 50 to 60 year old adults, it's associated with obesity and being overweight because when you're laying, especially flat on your back, that extra weight on your neck is depressing your windpipe, which can make it harder to breathe. And part of sleep apnea, um, it actually causes pauses in your breathing. And so you're having interrupted breathing while you're sleeping versus there are some, Older adult conditions, for example, such as CHF, where it's a healthy weight female, but she may have sleep apnea because of either medication she's prescribed or medical conditions. So it's not just that obesity that we think of with our 40 and 50 year olds.
1: And so if you have sleep apnea mm-hmm. and and it's associated with, with snoring, are there risks of untreated sleep apnea? I mean, what do you tell people to turn over or what What are the ways to, to prevent it or at least maybe reduce it?
2: Sure. And I think sleeping on your side is one start, but really you should get what's called a sleep study where they hook you up to monitors and test how many times you actually stop breathing in your sleep. It can be concerning when you get the results of those. And if you do have true sleep apnea so, and there's two types. The most common I think people think of is that obstructive, which is where it is stopping the wind flow to your lungs. They use things such as it's called a CPAP machine or um, continuous positive airway pressure, which increases the oxygenation over time. But there's definitely a lot of risks of not treating it. So people feel really tired the next day because they did not get good quality sleep. And using something like a seat machine is much more beneficial than, for example, a medication or even therapy, because you need to treat the underlying cause. And if people don't treat it, that fatigue, we sometimes see people, for example, fall asleep while driving. Or if you're sitting at a stoplight, people nod off. They're more likely to fall asleep while watching TV or doing something that doesn't require mental alertness, because they have not been getting good quality of sleep at night. So I hope that makes sense.
1: Yes. Well, and uh, regarding, because I have heard of the CPAP machine, where do you get something like that? I mean, if people are listening and say, wow, maybe I should look into that. Is that, does it have to be prescribed or can you order it on Amazon or what, what do um, you know, what do our listeners need to know?
2: Sure. And it, it definitely should be prescribed. And the reason I say that is They usually have somebody come back to the sleep lab and connect them and figure out what settings they need to set their machine at to give them the adequate airflow and reduce those interruptions or pauses in breathing while they're sleeping. So it's not something you should just find one and purchase or buy from somebody else because it has to be personalized to you. And when it's prescribed, you usually wanna find a, a place that sells medical equipment or medical supplies and if you don't find it comfortable there's a lot of other they call them oral devices that can be used or different types of positive airway pressure such as BiPAP so if you don't find your CPAP comfortable know that there are other options out there but I think the biggest hurdle is getting that sleep study my understanding is sometimes it can take four to six to eight weeks to get in with a sleep specialist
1: Would that have to be, again, through your primary care physician, that that would be kind of a referral?
2: Usually, yes.
1: Okay. Let's talk about a couple of other conditions that are sometimes related to the ability to sleep. One of them, and I think you mentioned it a little bit earlier, was restless leg syndrome. What what is that? Again, how does that impact the ability to sleep, and are there ways to treat it?
2: Yes. Absolutely. And so the way I best describe restless leg syndrome is the person who is laying in bed and they feel like they have a creepy crawly sensation in their legs, they need to move them to get it better. Or sometimes they have to get up and walk around the room and do a couple laps to make that kind of pain sensation go away. I feel like there's been an increased recognition of it because we do have commercials for medications that help treat it. Um, When I have somebody who presents with symptoms of restless legs, the first thing I like to do is to actually screen them for iron deficiency because we found that older adults are more likely to have an iron deficiency which can be linked to these restless leg symptoms. Um, part of that may be medical conditions. So for example, if somebody has chronic kidney disease and is on dialysis, they might have lower iron stores, which can increase their risk of restless leg syndrome. So my first, again, is to look for an underlying cause that we can treat, because iron is a lot different than a prescription medication, versus if it's more of what we call a primary restless leg syndrome, we use a medication that targets dopamine such as Mirapex is the brand name or Pramipexol is the generic. There's another one brand name Requip or Ropinerol. Those are both medications that kind of treat the the neurotransmitter deficiency in your brain that's causing the restless legs. And we also, of course, have medications that can worsen restless leg syndrome. Nicotine can, alcohol can. So there's a lot of, I think, lifestyle modifications people can do to help with that. And I wanna pause because I think some people also think about periodic limb movements of sleep, which is more of a jerking movement that occurs every 20 to 30 seconds. However, a lot of people do have symptoms of both and may with PMLS meet the criteria for RLS or restless legs. If you wanna find out more information, there's a website that is the RLS Foundation, which can be found at www.rls.org. And my last movement that I think is important to talk about with the older adult population is something that's called an REM sleep behavior disorder. And so if you remember earlier, we said REM sleep is when you have your kind of your vivid dreams. Some people act out their dreams. And we've actually started to identify that people who have REM sleep behavior disorder are at a higher risk of a certain type of dementia called Lewy body disease or Lewy body dementia as they age. So if you have a bed partner who moves a lot, it may be important to have them discuss those symptoms with their provider.
1: Good advice. Thank you for for that. I wanted to cover one other um, condition, which again, you also mentioned earlier, GERD or the gastroesophageal reflux disease. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that as a cause of of sleep problems. Did you want to talk a little bit more about treatment or prevention?
2: Sure. And I'll start with a good sleep hygiene practice is to not have a large meal right before bed, especially if you have GERD or heartburn, because number one, your body doesn't digest food as well while you're sleeping, which again, increases the risk of obesity and other issues. So we generally recommend you know, eating dinner around 5 or 6 p.m. and not a very large meal. If you need a snack before bedtime, say you have diabetes and your sugar drops while you're sleeping, have a small snack like peanut butter crackers or something that has protein that will hold it throughout the night. But it's really to avoid eating a big meal. And again, that lying on your back, it causes your stomach juices to go back up into your esophagus, which can worsen heartburn and impact your sleep. So it's definitely something we hear a lot about.
1: Indeed, indeed. So, well, let's, for the remaining part of this interview, talk about how we can get a better night's sleep. And you've already talked about a sleep-friendly environment and a nightly sleep routine. But what do you think in terms of exercise and helping older adults sleep better? And not only the type of exercise, but even when to do it, at night, in the morning, what do we need to know?
2: If your body is healthy and you can do it, I think exercise is just great for many things, your physical health, your mental health, and your sleep quality. But it really should be done in the morning or kind of mid-afternoon, not on days when it's 100 degrees out like this summer, but um, when it's a nice comfortable temperature because you're using your energy then which is going to tire you out and hopefully help you sleep better at night versus if you exercise right before bedtime because you're increasing your endorphins and increasing your energy it's actually going to be harder to fall asleep so we do recommend exercise we just recommend it earlier in the day
1: okay and another thing that we also hear about as we get older and i can certainly attest to its value sometimes and that's taking a nap a daily nap is is that a good idea and if so how long should it be should we do it every day uh, what what do we need to know about taking daily naps or taking naps not daily we'll wait to hear what you have to say about that
2: and i think naps is I'll say a double-edged sword because the people who don't get enough at sleep sleep that night say you only got six hours you're going to feel more tired the next day so i think people really want like their body's telling them i need more sleep and they want to lie down and get a get a nap in but really the sleep experts recommend avoiding daytime naps primarily because if you take a one or two hour nap number one it's going to be harder to fall asleep because you got a nice period of sleep in the middle of the day and flip side, if you just took a two hour nap, your body's really only needs to sleep for six hours at night because that'll equal your total of eight hours over the course of the day. So, the I'll say book answer, for lack of a better term, is to really avoid taking naps if you can because you'll get better sleep at night and it'll be easier to fall asleep.
1: All right. Well, you heard it here. So um, I'll remember that when I lie down in the middle of the afternoons.
2: But I think an occasional nap is not harmful, but a daily nap is probably not something we want to recommend.
1: Okay. Well, and that's very helpful. The other thing I think that listeners want to hear about are sedatives. Gosh, we hear so much about sleep medication. And so do sedatives really help older adults sleep? And and let's start with the over-the-counter medication or or maybe even herbal supplements. Uh, are they safe? Um, are there side effects? What what should we know about about sedatives?
2: It's hard because there's this list of medications called the beers list, which is the author's name is beers. And it's a list of medications we should try to avoid in older adults. And then they give us recommendations about what is preferred. So I'm just going to start with a lot of sedatives are listed as medications to avoid. I'll get into why. Um, But they really don't give us many good alternatives. And so I agree. I think a lot of people are more likely to try and self-treat before going to their providers. And there's lots of options when you walk into the pharmacy. But a lot of the things, as I mentioned earlier, like Tylenol PM, Motrin PM, Advil PM, they contain an antihistamine called diphenhydramine or Benadryl. So, diphenhydramine is the generic active ingredient. Uh, Benadryl is the brand name. Um, that can accumulate in older adults. It may help for a night or two, but I've actually had people admitted to my inpatient psychiatry unit who are so confused. They look like they have Alzheimer's. And when we sit there and we observe them for two or three days, the medication clears out of their system and their cognition actually improves. So I am a strong proponent of avoiding taking medications. If you're over the age of 60, that include or contain the diphenhydramine. So that's when I would, I would say avoid, even though it's available, it is probably not something you want to be taking. Um, And then from the herbal standpoint, there's a handful of things out there there's not as much evidence with, I'd say like valerian root or chamomile, but the one that gets a lot of attention is melatonin. And so we didn't get too deep into it earlier, but melatonin is the neurotransmitter or chemical that your body secretes when the sun goes down. So it's telling your body, Hey, the sun is setting. It's time to start thinking about getting ready for bed. And so, especially now here in Richmond, it doesn't, the sun doesn't go down until almost 9 p.m. So melatonin is essentially a man-made formulation of this same brain chemical, and it's thought to help people go to sleep at night. The I'll say the the Concern is we don't have a lot of great data because it's an herbal medication. It's not actually approved by the Food and Drug Administration, so we have more what I would call anecdotal data, people who tell you it helps. That said, I will say there has been more focus recently on its use in older adults just because, in general, it is a fairly safer over-the-counter slash herbal option. It doesn't affect people's liver like some of the medications do. It doesn't seem to interact with a lot of medications. And if if you are going to use it, my caveats are lowest dose, three or six milligrams. Um, and you really want to read the label of what you're purchasing because a lot of times it'll say melatonin on the front. But then when you read the back, it includes like four or five other ingredients. And so you really want to get just the single ingredient product, if that makes sense.
1: Well, and thank you. I, I was... I wanted you to talk about the melatonin because there was two other kind of sub-questions. One, are there side effects if you take it for an extended length of time? And if so, is it important not to continue taking it um, on a long-term basis? Uh, what, What do we need to know?
2: So the first one I talked about, the diphenhydramine or Benadryl. Its effects wear off after about a week. So you really should not be taking that one chronically or on a long-term basis. And the risk, as I mentioned, we see in older adults is confusion, constipation. We were talking about going to the bathroom too much, but it actually can cause urinary retention in older adults. And so again, those men with BPH, it makes it harder for them to pee. And falls is always kind of my biggest thing that I wanna try and avoid in my older adults. Versus melatonin, I'd say the jury's still out. They haven't found many major concerns because it doesn't work on some of the targets that prescription medications do. We don't see the falls. And so, and again, we really don't know how long-term we can use it. I really think it should be more of like a short-term, like if something environmental or in your, like you just traveled to Europe, for example, had a nice two-week vacation and you come back and you're having a hard time getting back on our East Coast time zone, maybe a few nights of melatonin will help re-regulate that sleep cycle, if that makes sense.
1: Right, right. So because we're getting close to the end, I really want to hear what you have to say about prescription uh, sleep medications.
2: And there's so many. My book answer, again, We should try therapy first and minimize other medications that are worsening insomnia treat medical conditions but if we get to taking a medication my list of what to avoid is much longer um many of the listeners on the call probably are familiar with Restoril or temazepam it was heavily marketed back in the 50s and 60s it's a benzodiazepine which again, we see higher rates of falls in older adults. Um, The newer medication Zolpidem or Ambien, I guess it's been about, about 15, 20 years now, but Ambien is one of the most prescribed medications for treating insomnia. We don't recommend it. Again, falls is the primary reason, but they actually did a study looking at men versus females and the concentrations, and it can worsen next day driving So if you take a sleep medication and you don't sleep for eight hours and you get up the next morning, say after six hours, you may still have levels of the medication in your bloodstream that's enough to impact your driving. But what's interesting is they found Older females sometimes have two to four times the levels of like a younger female or younger male. So I'm even more cautious in my older females. So in general, the recommendation is to avoid those types of medications. Um, The ones I'm a little more open-minded to, trazodone, which is an off-label use of an antidepressant that we use sometimes in combination with antidepressants to treat um insomnia and in people who have depression might be something to consider. It can cause dizziness, but if somebody has a primary indication for depression, it might be something to consider. There is this new class of drugs that are called erexin um, antagonists. So they work on one of those wake-promoting hormones. If you've seen commercials for belsomra or Dayvigo, they they are actually, I think, smart in that they're starting to do studies in older adults where you have to be a minimum age of 50 to be enrolled in the study. So they're trying to make an argument that there is a safer option for older adults with insomnia. I don't have a strong opinion yet because we're still gathering that data. And then the last one is a medication called Doxepin or Silenor, which is an old tricyclic antidepressant, if you remember, um, Sinequan. They took a tiny little dose of it, three and six milligrams, and found that it can help with sleep, and they've studied it in older adults, and we don't see those negative, dry mouth, dizziness, confusion that we see with the higher doses that were used in depression. That was a really long answer, so please let me know if you have any questions. but. Again, my biggest is if you're going to take one, you need a full night's sleep. Um be careful cuz it can affect you the next morning and some people do fall because these are sedatives. So
1: Well, and since we are as I said, about out of time there, I would just the final question would be any best resources to learn more about sleep problems? Absolutely.
2: So, I would say if you have access to the internet, there's a lot of great um resources out there. Specifically, there's, if you want to learn about obstructive sleep apnea, there's stuff on that. There's the National Institute on Aging, which has a bunch of resources about sleep, getting a good night's sleep, how age infects your sleep. There's the American Sleep Foundation. Um, I think those are good starting points. Again, you can always talk to your provider. There are sleep specialists that you can be referred to and Again, I'm a pharmacist. My last comment on meds is when they look at the studies, a lot of times people think they help, but when they actually look at how much more time people sleep, they might've fallen asleep two or 10 minutes faster and maybe gotten an extra 30 minutes to an hour longer of sleep. So I really strongly advocate for, again, treating your medical conditions, doing good sleep hygiene practices and before getting to the point of medications.
1: Good advice. Well, I want to thank Dr. Erica Krauss, the associate professor with the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy for joining me today. Thank you so much. Dr. Thank you Krause. so
2: much for having me. It's a topic I love to talk about. So,
1: <laughs> And you did a fabulous job. So, And I would encourage our listeners, if you want to learn about aging matters, you can visit our website, which of course is agingmattersonline.com. And at this site, you can access all of our Aging Matters radio as well as TV show episodes and also log on to our podcasts, which are now on Apple and Spotify and have been for about a year and a half. So be sure and check out the radio and TV show pages. And by the way, Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. And if you want to learn more about this company, visit inkmouthmedia.com. So thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.